Well, the election seems to be over. At least that's how it's projected. Um, and my point is not to discuss that this morning, but uh, this, the researchers among us have determined that we lost about 138 million hours of sleep on election night as a nation. Okay? And there is no telling how much more sleep and stress we've experienced over the last week. Uh, I don't know about how you feel about the election, but in some ways it's good to have it behind us, and let's just kind of move forward. Because uh, what happens in Washington, uh, we'll leave that there. We live in Pavilion, uh, and we have work to do. But anxiety runs deep in America. 27% of adults surveyed said they have trouble sleeping every night. And 68% of Americans say they have trouble sleeping at least one night per week. Half of millennials have left a job due to mental stress. Generation Z, that number is 75%. Stress is up in every single category. You say, what are people worried about? Well, they're worried about money, work, the economy, and family, in that order. But is there something under all of these categories that ends up being the root cause of all this stress and anxiety? Now, you don't need me to tell you that Americans are stressed because you're stressed and the people you know are stressed. Okay? If you're not stressed, can I help you? Right? Christmas is 47 days away and you haven't done anything about it. You're welcome. All right? You all looked a little too calm out there. But, you know, I wrote those words, and I thought to myself, wait a minute, why is Christmas stressful? But it is. Don't lie to me. It is. The holiday season is stressful. There's all this stuff to do, the cards to write, the meals to prepare, the cookie cutter, the cookies to, to, to bake and cut and decorate and all of that. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the holidays. And we look forward to those traditions. And what happens is, over the year, all of the stress and the, the chaos melts away, and we just have glowing memories, right? The few pictures we snapped on our phone, or, you know, Facebook reminds us of the previous year, like, oh, it's pretty good. I'm going to look at you in about three weeks, and your hair's going to be all disheveled. And Yeah, we're going we're to enjoy and stress our way through the holidays. But is there a way... To be free from the anxiety and the stress. Because the stress is killing us. The answer is yes. And I want you to find that answer with me in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. This is an incredible text. Perhaps one of the greatest invitations in all of the Bible. And I know I say that. But this, in this case, um, it's, it's almost certainly true. So let's read this text. We're going to begin in verse 25, Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was your gracious will. For all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, we've been studying what it means to be the family of God, and we spent a whole bunch of time talking about who the Father was, getting a a good sense of what he is and his plan for us. And then we shifted to understanding family life. How do we relate to each other? And boy, that took us all kinds of interesting places. We need to do one last pivot, just because we need to end this series at some point. And we are shifting to inviting people into the family. You say, this is an interesting text to deal with that. Yes, but our community is filled with stressful, anxious people. And perhaps here, too, in the church family, there are people that uh, are experiencing high levels of anxiety and stress. So we want to understand what burdens our world, what burdens our neighbors, what burdens our family. And we want to find this invitation to rest. We want to rest, and then we want to go out inviting other people to find what they desperately need. All right? Uh, So let's pray. And then we'll get started. Father God, what an invitation. You invite us to come and find rest and find joy. Father, many from my brothers and sisters here, we long for that to be true. But despite claiming you as our Savior, that rest has remained elusive Father, no doubt that is true because of the doubt of our hearts and because of our inability to understand your great love. Father, we are back again and we long to understand. Father, I can explain the grammar of this text, but I can't change hearts. Nor can I help my friends or even myself to believe it. So, Father, meet with us as your people, chosen and beloved, would help us to rest in you and you alone. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Now, our text invites us to find rest in him. But before we can find rest, we need to find out what's causing all the stress in the first place. And that is critical All right, because some of you here would swear, yes, I came to Jesus. That's been a long time ago. But if we were to ask your doctor for your blood pressure, right, he would convince you that you haven't found rest. That's not me picking on you. That's me wanting you to live better and myself to live better. Isn't this enticing? Don't we want to unlock the mystery of this? Let's dive in. We start with a burdened world. Our text talks about yokes, which I think is illuminating about what's going on. Now, in the the ancient world, a yoke was a wooden bar, and it would link two animals, would pull a plow or a cart or something like that. Now, Jesus is inviting us to join him in his yoke. But if you're not yoked to Jesus, you're yoked to something else, okay? And that something else is the cause of your stress, I promise you. Now, the irony is if you were to ask most of you, or most Americans for that matter, they would say, well, I'm not really burdened by anything. I'm not really entangled in anything. 
Because we feel independent, but we also feel pressure, which is a strange thing, right? Like, no, no, I'm free. I'm my own person, but I, I feel stress on my shoulders. Well, Americans love freedom. It is our highest ideal. And we are convinced that if we can just be free, we'll be happy. The irony is that freedom comes at an incredible cost. You say, what are you talking about? Well, let's just imagine we go to the zoo, all right? And you start throwing open the cages and you're shouting at the animals. You're free. I would start with the chimpanzees, not the tigers. But you're free. Go be free. And you kick them out of their cages. What will happen to the animals? A couple of things that might surprise you. One, they won't go very far. They may barely leave the zoo grounds. Second of all, they will be scared, vulnerable, and disoriented. And most likely they will die in time. Why, you say? Well, these are wild animals. They shouldn't be in a cage. And my point is not to argue the ethics of zoos. Okay, that's not, that's not our point here. But if you want to free animals by kicking them out of their homes, you're, you're essentially making them homeless. You're depriving them of the food and security that they need to thrive, albeit in their artificial environment. So could we, at least an animal that's been domesticated in the zoo... Their freedom, that kind of freedom, ends up being dangerous. You say, well, what about people? Aren't people better off on their own? I know, careful, it's a political season. Most people would say, yes. We love the idea of not needing to answer to anyone. We're just doing our own thing. We love that. This freedom was first sought by Eve. So I'm going to make my own choices. And I think it'll work out just fine. Well, we've been chasing that ideal ever since. So what happens when we launch out on our own? Well, some things that you might not think about. First of all, there is the burden of identity. That's a weird one. I wouldn't have come up with that. Well, yeah, but one of the fundamental questions that all of us have to ask ourselves is, who am I? And when you step away and you're living life on your own, that question is yours and yours alone to answer. Well, people answer this question all kinds of ways. There's this notion, especially if you hang out in um, the the high schools or the colleges of this country, that inside, locked inside of you, there is an authentic self. And yes, the cultural forces have tried to mold you, but only you know who you are supposed to be. And you need to discover who you really are. Now, that's important because your identity dictates how you spend your time and your money and your emotions. Because nobody wants to be inauthentic. Okay? It's not a small thing. You have to answer the question. No one wants to use their strength for something that doesn't matter or was unimportant. So we give ourselves to our work and our family and our community or our country or even to ourselves. And we pursue fame and relationships and status or pleasure. And what's our goal? Well, our goal is to make a name for ourselves. We want to be remembered. We want to be important or influential. Now... You say, okay, how do we discover the authentic self, who you are supposed to be? Well, I went to my friends at Psychology Today, and they offer some help. They offer a long list. I'll just give you a short portion. They give you some questions. Because after all, they can't tell you. You need to discover this for yourself. So, first of all, we ask ourselves, if there was no such thing as fear or failure, what would my life look like? 
If I had $100 million, what would I do? Who was my role model? And if I had $30,000 to donate to a cause, who would I donate to? No, there's not, those, are, those are interesting questions, aren't they? Don't they reveal things about our hearts? Nothing wrong with the questions. Nothing wrong at all with those questions. Okay? But the idea is if you want to know who you are, you just look inside and examine your passions, and they will lead you to do what you ought to do. I can think of a few problems with that. Because my passions are changing. They are not stable. So I would end up answering these questions differently on Tuesday as I would on Friday. Which is not good in terms of me determining my authentic self. Some of you are passionate about work. You love your work, but you can't work. Some of you are passionate about providing for your family, but right now that's not possible for so many reasons. Maybe they're, they're away from you. Or maybe you, you know, you're not working. Or maybe um, you don't have a family. You wanted to. It just wasn't there. What does that say about your authentic self? Some of you are passionate about enjoying life or travel, and yet COVID kind of blew up that dream. What am I saying? Well, if your authentic self matches your passions, all of us are very frustrated beings. And that leads us back to stress and anxiety, doesn't it? So if you tie your identity to something that is not eternal, then your identity will be lost and you will become profoundly disillusioned. How many people have woken up in their 30s, 40s, 60s, and they say, I, I don't know who I am. You know, I, I just spent my best years of strength serving a company I don't even like. Why did I do that? And it's, it's crippling. Right? The idea of the midlife crisis is not made up. All right? How many people find themselves here? And it's a tremendous source of anxiety. Since everyone, your neighbors, your family, your church, your community, your boss, they have different ideas of who you should be. Right? Christmas time, Christmas movies, Elf, Will Ferrell, his character says, you know, singing's my favorite. And his boss says, make work your favorite. I'll tell you how you're supposed to view life. Make work your favorite. Yeah, but we can't just swap identities. Because if you rock yourself to the core, life gets weird. Right? Everyone disagrees on how you should be spending your life, and so there's no rest. So what do we turn to? Well, if you can't do anything you want to do, you try to find meaning in what you are currently doing. Right? Man in this epic quest for meaning. So we try to find satisfaction doing the right things. Meaning is trying to find purpose in what you're currently doing. Right? I go to church on purpose. I serve my family on purpose. I go to my job on purpose. So we ask the question, are you successful at what you're doing? Well, that's an interesting question. Somebody suggested it's the Internet that has made the world flat. Not so long ago, right, you could be like the best printer in your community. You could be the coolest mom or the, you know, the best dad. But now we have the Internet, so you get to know what everybody on the planet is doing. Right? Enter Facebook and Pinterest and Etsy, and if you don't know what those things are, you are richly blessed. Okay? Because those things, though they, they are designed to spark ideas and creativity, they show you that everyone's doing it better than you. Everybody. 
if you trust the pictures. Right? And what does that do for your sense of meaning? You're playing catch-up. You're the before picture. Right? You're the failure. You're the one struggling. Everyone else seems to get it right. Hmm. So we pour out our effort and it doesn't seem like it matters. We're trying to prove that we're important. We're trying to make some sort of meaningful difference. But the things that we invest in seem like they erode. And they don't last. Ever renovate a house? Oh, finally we're done. You're never done renovating a house. Right? You finish the last project and you have to redo the first project. That's just how it works. So where's the meaning? You, you invest in people and they, they move away or, or they pass away. Stuff. We crave people's praise and support. Right? We look in the mirror and we're trying to prove that we matter and yet no one seems to care. Or we're terrified of being forgotten or judged or worse than all of that, outclassed. I think that's why we have this compulsive need to show pictures on Facebook. We want to show the world that, hey, I'm interesting. I'm fun. I'm living a meaningful life. But the weird thing is when you put your life out there, everyone's critical, aren't they? You can't make anyone happy. So if you're looking for meaning by people praising you for what you've done, you will be the most frustrated among us. All right? The world is full of critics who are telling you that you're wrong and that you're a failure. Now, what makes us susceptible to that is that deep down we know we're supposed to be better. Right? Did anyone live like the week they really wanted this week? You said, all seven days I did exactly what I wanted and it was awesome. I've never had a week like that in my life. High points, yes. Success, yes. All the time, never. It doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. See, we have the taste of the perfect because we were created to be perfect. We know the way things should be, but we know we don't measure up. And that's why we're touchy and envious and restless because we want things to be better than they are. We want to be important and influential and loved. But the more we try, the more we fail. If you're trying to live for other people's approval, you'll always be running. And if you try to find meaning in anything, you tend to squeeze the life out of it. This is thought-provoking. This comes from Pastor Tim Keller. Anything you yoke yourself to, you will destroy or it will destroy you. I try to find meaning in the fact that I am, you know, stylish. Yeah, good luck with that. You'll always be chasing fashion. My youth, my strength, elusive. People, fickle. Unreliable. See what happens? If you try to squeeze all of your meaning out of your spouse, you'll crush them. They can't be your God. Right? Try to find meaning in your job, your industry will get replaced by something disruptive. You say that's dark. That's real. You live that. You don't need me to tell you this. Right? There's a third thing. And it's at the, maybe at the root of all of this, and it is the burden of control. You see? When you demand to be the God of your life, you're in control. You have absolute freedom, don't you? You can do whatever you want. You don't have to sit here. You can, you can actually just step out now. I won't stop you and God won't stop you. You're free. You're free. So we dream big about what will make you happy. And then we work really hard to make those dreams come true. And then what happens? Well, life has a way of crushing those dreams, doesn't it? And we say we are free until we try to pursue our passions and we just slam up against a wall. 
We said, that hurts. And we try it again. And bam! Ah! Right? You gotta love the people that say, you know, if my guy doesn't get elected, I'm moving out of the country. I think I know the spirit of why people say that. But can we be honest, it's easier to weather the ups and downs of politics than culture shock. When you really think moving somewhere else, the people there will be better. I mean, good luck. You know, that, that's, that's fine. Um, but we work so hard because we're frustrated because things don't go our way. And it's like that child, you know, at the grocery store standing there screaming, it's not fair. And what do all the adults say? Who told you life was fair? I didn't, I didn't say that, right? We assume, this is amazing, we assume that life should be comfortable and we're persecuted if we're undergoing any sort of crisis. Can we be honest? That is ridiculous arrogance, right? Why do I say that? Well, because you live on a sin-cursed planet in a dying body. <laughs> what could go wrong, right? It, it's amazing that things go as well as they do. There is a law in physics, the second law of thermodynamics. I know that sounds fancy. It's not. It, it says that things tend to disorder, kind of like a teenager's bedroom. You know, it just, given enough time, chaos descends. And actually, the natural state of a cursed world is decay and disorder. And we spend enormous amounts of energy to try to make things orderly and purposeful. Talking to you gardeners, Right? You know this, we feel this all the time. Murphy was right, so why do we get so miffed? You live in a broken world, and yet we have the audacity to wake up and think that the world owes us a perfect life. Now the irony of that is we want things that will hurt us. People get married, but then when it gets hard, they want to walk away. People walk away from church families and friends over stupid arguments. And isn't it amazing that we would rather be isolated and bitter just because we want to prove we were right rather than offering forgiveness so we can enjoy thick relationships. Does that make sense to anybody? But we all do it, right? Just the way we're wired. Now, we spent a long time on this, and and you say, why? You're just making me feel lousy. That's not my goal. But until you take your fingers off wanting to be in control, it doesn't get better. Right? Some of us haven't felt rest because we want God to fix our dreams. And God says, you're, you're headed the wrong direction. And until I can spin you around, you'll never know rest. So we need to hit the bottom. Or at least we need to be convinced, you know what? I am not a competent judge or God of my life. I don't get to say what happened Tuesday was wrong. You know why? Because there's a God of the universe that got exactly his way Tuesday. You say, I don't like that. You can talk to the Father, and that's fair. That's fair. You say, I'm not sure it was just. Is that in your control? It's not. It's not. So why are you stressed about it? Do you think that somehow God was threatened? No. All right, I didn't want to delve in there. But just feel it with me, all right? Now, in our text, what's going on? It says, at that time. That's where we started, verse 25. What time? Well, if you go up just a few verses, Jesus has denounced two cities, Chorazin and Capernaum. Why? Because they've rejected him and they wouldn't follow him, even though he did tons of signs there. Now, Jesus is not being petty. Look at verse 23 and 24. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heavens? 
Now, you'll be brought down to Hades for the mighty works done in you. If they had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow, that is strong words. What was going on? Well, these cities, it's amazing. They had become arrogant because they were privileged to see the great teacher and his miracles. But they wouldn't accept them as the Messiah. Right? So they were feeling like privileged people, but they wouldn't give their hearts to Jesus. They doubted and insisted on living for themselves. And so our text picks up and Jesus thanks the Father for what? Isn't this amazing? Look at your text. He thanks the Father that he has hidden the truth from the wise and learned people, but has given the truth to those who are simple and childlike. Then our text explains that the only way people find identity, meaning, and rest is through the Father, but they can only see the Father if the Son reveals the truth. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, okay? Please don't get the idea that there are all these people out there desperately looking for the truth, and Jesus is being stingy, like, "Mm, not for you, not for you. Oh, okay, I guess I'll give it to you. It's not how this works. And you can see that in John 9. Verses 39 through 41, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those may see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, We see, and your guilt remains. What's going on? He said, if you wanted help and you knew that you were blind, I would rescue you and I would restore you. But you keep pushing back. You keep insisting that you're fine. You're refusing the treatment. And because you refuse, your guilt remains. That's the context of the greatest invitation in the Bible. What's that invitation? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, So friends, is that you today? Are you exhausted and frustrated or broken? This invitation is for the immoral, for the failures, for the outcasts. This invitation is for everyone. We need help. Some of you don't think so. Let's lay it on the line, okay? If you're here and you're frustrated, discouraged, lonely, envious or impatient this week, then you need Jesus. It's not the way you were designed to live. The emotions are not sinful, but they are indicators of messed up thinking, mostly rooted that it's not supposed to be this way, as if you got to plan your life. Yes, you and I have restless, hurting souls, and Jesus wants to offer us rest. Not wagging my finger at you, I'm inviting you to make steps forward. So if that's you today, let's find hope. Can we collectively find hope in these verses? We start with an invitation to rest. Jesus says, come to me. That is an invitation for identity, right? You've tried to make life work. You've tried to be the God of your own life, and it didn't work out. And then he says, come to me. In all the Gospels, what does Jesus say over and over and over? Follow me. Just follow me. Be with me. You say, well, what good is that going to do? Right? How is that going to change all the brokenness in my life? The Bible explains. Right? And when we stop 
being the God of our lives and we ask Jesus to rescue us, something amazing happens. Jesus forgives all of the failure, past, present, and future. And then he gives us the perfect record that we were striving so hard to achieve. Isn't that amazing? You're trying to prove yourself by what you do or through your family, and you you just, it's awful. It's certainly not impressive to God. And when you stop trying, you say, God, I tried and I failed. And I'm not going to try anymore. I just need you. And Jesus says, oh, you know what? I have the record you're looking for. It's flawless. Here. It's yours. Let me robe you in my perfection. You don't have to strive anymore. It's done. It's finished. Your life is complete. And what the Father will see is perfection. And then he adopts us into the family and makes us joint heirs with him. So let's talk about identity. You tried to find your authentic self and you found out that you were messed up. Be honest. So did I. We were trying to make a name for ourselves. And then all of a sudden, God gave us everything that we could not achieve. Now you want to talk about identity, right? The son comes and says, I'll take away your failure. You don't have to mop up the mess. I'll do that. I'll pay for it. I'll bring justice. Don't worry about the past. In fact, don't worry about if you fail today. You say, how could that be? Because you're robed in the perfection of Jesus, and he brought you into the family, and he gave you his spirit and said, I'll take care of it. I will restore you. I will transform you. You know what that means? That drove you to all of that anxiety and all of that loneliness and all that pressure. It's solved in Jesus. But you and I forget. Okay? But isn't it beautiful? Jesus says, if you want to talk about identity, he points to you and says, that's my daughter. That's my son. And I love them. Jesus calls us friend. He loves us the way a groom treasures his bride, which means nobody else's opinion matters, and you have nothing to prove. You're free. You've received the glory for Jesus' victory and perfect life. The pressure is off. So can I ask you, are you still trying to prove yourself? What's left to prove? I want to prove to the world I'm a really good baker. Stop, stop it. You're a child of the king. Your status doesn't go any higher, but we don't celebrate ourselves. That's the hard thing. Like we bask in the glow of Jesus' finished perfection, so we don't have to strive. We get to enjoy that benefit, but we remain who we are as he slowly changes us. Sometimes we're trying to prove that we're super godly or strong or friendly or smart. To which I would reply, I think Jesus is inviting you to stop trying to be impressive. Even, careful here, stop trying to be perfect. Stop it. The old hymn has it right. It says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. My mentor likes to say that the process of discipleship is moving from unbelief to belief in every area of life. And if you still think you have something to prove, you don't understand the gospel. It's okay. The Lord will teach you. Let me illustrate this. Corey Ten Boom, she, she wrote The Hiding Place. Uh, they hid Jews and was later taken to a, a concentration camp. She had an aunt who was just obsessed with Christian work. Every day, every dollar, she just was obsessed and, and wanted to live a life that would matter to God. Okay. 
stressed out of her mind. Well, she developed diabetes, and they couldn't cure that in those days. But it was a matter of time before the, the condition became fatal. So Corey Tinboom would, would do the test to help see where her blood was at. This is the 1930s. Okay. Finally, the day comes, and that test, that blood work, turns up black, and she knows it's just a matter of time. Her aunt will die. They have no treatment. So she tells her father and that the family gets together in solidarity and they walk up to the aunt's room and uh, she sees the family and, she, you know, kind of a light bulb goes off. This is what Corey Tinboom writes. Father spoke first. He said, my dear holy sister-in-law, there is a joyous journey which each of God's children sooner or later sets out on. And Jans, some must go to the father empty-handed, but you will run to him with hands full. All of your projects, uh, Anna ventured. Your writings, Mama added. The funds you've raised, said Betsy. Your talks, I began. But all of our well-meant words were useless. And Auntie John, Jans put her hands over her eyes and began to cry. Empty, she said at last. How can we bring anything to God? What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? And we listened in disbelief as she lowered her head. And with tears coming down her face, she whispered, Dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with empty hands. And I thank you that you've done it all, all on the cross. And all that we need is a life, and life or death is to be sure of this. In that moment, that woman got it. And all the stress and all the toil of the years melted away. This is the beginning of rest. We let Jesus do it all and we stop striving. But there's more. Take my yoke. We are free from striving on our own and being yoked to empty things. Now Jesus gives us a calling and we join him on mission. We follow him in the great work of rescuing the world and restoring people back into relationship with the Father. So you get to show people what the Father is like at home, at work, and in the community. You don't need people to be impressed with you, but with the Father. Which is easy, because He is perfect. Now here's some great news. You don't have to do anything. It's been secured by Jesus. But you get to do the work of the Father. Think of what Jesus has called you to. He didn't call you because He needed slave labor. Did you know that? He didn't call us because we're the best or brightest. And God says, you know what? If I can just get Pat, all of my problems will be solved. Seriously, think think about what you've been trying to do to rescue the world for Jesus. God doesn't need you. Look at this. Mark 10, 34 through 35. It says, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. Why? For even the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, came not to serve, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's an amazing paradox. Jesus, the creator of the world, does not seek to be served by us, but to serve his creation so that we all thrive. And so what's Jesus' plan for your life? Well, it's that you would be completely satisfied in him so that the world would see his glorious Goodness, patience, and power through your life. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. 
So when we follow Jesus, he leads us to the best possible life. You say that life involves suffering and pain, yes, as well as blessing and provision. But what's happening is God is healing our hearts, and then we're being sent out to show other people where help can be found. This amazing adventure is true life. And that means everything that you face is planned by your Father, and it's for your good and his glory, which does not mean everything is good. Okay? People still sin. There is still brokenness. But it does mean as you run to the Father, you will always find help. And you will always find the opportunity to show people what God is like through your life. To be light. To be salt. Think about it. That means in a frustrating election, we have the chance to show the world how to honor people we don't trust or like. It means submission and diligence to an unfair boss. It means we're patient with moody teens. And by the way, it means we give respect to imperfect parents. Why? Because the Father will protect and provide and vindicate you. You don't need to squeeze that out of other people. We have nothing to prove. And so in every blessing, and every trial, we show that our Father is amazing and that we trust him completely. You see, complaining is a lie. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to be confused. But don't communicate to your roommates or to your neighbors that God is not big and in control and that he doesn't love you desperately. Stop trying to live for God. Stop trying to do great things for Him and just live with Him. Join Him in the yoke and let His mission be your dream and ambition. Live to serve others and share His love and generosity to people that He brings into your life. You can trust His provision. And here's where we end. We don't have to be in control. He says, learn from me. Jesus invites us to come and partner with Him. So now what? Read your Bible four hours a day? Tell everybody you meet the Romans road? Give all of your money to the church? I'm not saying those things are inherently bad, but that's not what Jesus has asked you to do. Right? It says, be with Jesus and learn from him. Learn what? See, everything I just described are what pastors tell you. Jesus says, stop. Calm down a little bit. Just, Just be with me. Well, we're going to learn, as our text says, how humble and gentle Jesus is. And you'll consider how patient he is with you and all the people that you are impatient with. Imagine this. You're living on mission with Christ. And you you start your day trusting that he planned it on purpose. And then you get impatient with that slow coffee guy. But you see Jesus loving that guy who still bears the image of the Father, albeit imperfectly. You realize that Jesus sought out broken and dirty people. Because he was restoration and light. And your world begins to change. You offer people love and forgiveness. You're not living to impress people. Rather, you listen and serve. You're quick to admit your mistakes and your flaws because you don't want people impressed with you. You want them impressed with the Father. You're no longer zealous for your status or reputation. You let God exalt you and direct all the praise to him. And you learn to lean on Christ for provision and guidance the way Jesus trusted the Father. And what happens is you become like Paul. You say, it's no longer I that live, it's Christ who's living through me. So anything good I do, would you just celebrate the Father? It's his power. It's his guidance. 
How do you know? Can I give you a tangible test, something practical, that when you are learning from Jesus and you're in the yoke with him, and perhaps the best indicator, the most helpful thing I could offer you is stop worrying about the outcome. You and I don't know what God is up to. So you can't say things didn't go right. God insists they always go right. They didn't go the way I planned. That happens every day. Okay? So we serve our neighbor, and they forget to thank you. You invest in the church family, and nobody seems to notice. You have an in-depth conversation with a child or a friend, and they don't change. But you are content that you've served the Lord well. You trusted that he guided you and that that investment was not wasted. God will continue to do his work. Let me just quote uh, an author, Dallas Willard, here as we close. It's an extended quotation, but it's really good. It's really good. Here's a simple fact. We live in a world where, by God's appointment, the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. That's Ecclesiastes 9. The Lord does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of men. That's Psalm 147. He has a plan for our life that goes beyond anything we could work out and secure by means of strong horses or good legs. We simply have to rest in his life as he gives it to us. Knowledge from Christ that he is good and great enables us to cast outcomes on him. And we find this knowledge in the yoke of Christ, resting in God. We can be free from all anxiety, which is deep soul rest. Whatever our circumstance, Christ taught us that we are to be enabled to be at rest, to be still in the Lord, to wait patiently for him. Psalm 37. We don't fret. We don't get angry because others seem to be doing better than we are, even though they are less deserving than we. That's good. Friends, rest comes when you find your identity and meaning in Christ and you trust in him alone to control your life and the world around you. Would you talk to the Father about what he's teaching you in this text? Pray privately, and then I'll lead us together. Father God, as we see your great invitation to those that are heavy and laden down, where we see ourselves, as we come to you, we realize that we are laden down because we are carrying things you did not design us to carry. We have trusted in our strength. We have tried to force control. We have been angry and moody and disappointed. We have cursed your providence. 
because we did not understand. Father, in this moment, there remain many things we do not understand. There remain hurts. There remain pain. There remains disease. Father, we come to you. Lord, we come to your great and powerful arms, and we trust you to control our lives. We trust you to take care of our families, to rescue our neighbors from futility. Lord, in our desire is to yoke with you. Our desire is to let you lead today and tomorrow. Our desire is to trust you and to worship you and to celebrate what you're doing and tell our friends, family, and neighbors what a good God you are and how I no longer have to be afraid. Father, we're prone to forgetting. Thank you. Thank you for showing us your beauty today. May we walk with you this week. Would you guide us how we can represent you well? We ask these things in your name.